sorry I don't love you A phrase I've grown accustomed to Cause with you if something isn't wrong Something isn't wrong Something isn't right Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. This week I have on Jameson Ketchum and we're going to talk all about the movie Almost Famous, which sadly it took me a very long time to watch this movie. I probably watched it within the last year or two and it really surprised me because of how much of a music focused movie it is that it took me so long. But before we dive into the movie, Jameson, how are you doing today? I'm doing so good. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. I'm so <laughs> nice. glad. I'm so glad there's people like you that have a show like this where <laughs> we can just be nerds about it. Yeah. And for anyone who isn't familiar with you, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you do? I know you have your own podcast and you work in the music industry as well. Yeah. Boy, it's been almost about 10 years now of doing uh, music journalism in different capacities, a lot of freelance writing work done a lot of PR work as well. <laughs> I was kind of just thinking about that today. Um, just lots of different avenues all within the music scene. And uh, the latest thing being the Godspeed podcast that I do with my my friend Ryan, where we kind of, uh, we talk to different artists from different avenues, a lot of musicians, of course, because that's, that's easy for us. Uh, but a lot of authors, comics, entrepreneurs, we just kind of, we kind of just had a goal of you know, talking to creative people and saying, where do you get that drive to do something that is considered largely very risky and very unstable? So yeah, Godspeed podcast has been the been the newest endeavor. Nice. And before we sort of dive into our thoughts on Almost Famous, I just want to get out some of the facts. You know, this was directed by and written by Cameron Crowe. He was also a producer on it with Ian Bryce. So, you know, Cameron Crowe's handprints are all over this movie and you know there's a great cast as well but what i really didn't know going into this podcast i just looked it up right now the budget for this movie was 60 million and it only made 47.4 at the box office so it's like technically it was a flop if you think about it that way you know it didn't even break even but i feel like this is such a big movie that people still talk about today especially in the music scene and everything and it runs just over two hours and like i had said i didn't watch it until recently and it came out back in 2000 so i don't know if it's because it was so focused on music specifically that it didn't do so well in the box office it wasn't maybe something everyone wanted to go see but you still had you know these big names in there kate hudson was the main woman in the movie and you have philip seymour hoffman making an appearance and that sort of thing so did you know that this movie didn't do so well when it initially came out? I, I didn't know that. I didn't know the numbers there. I I mean, I, and I remember it coming out. I, I didn't see it for a couple years after that either. I don't remember why. I don't remember feeling like I wasn't interested in it as much as uh, maybe maybe I just thought it was boring or just wasn't on my radar as much. But that's I mean, it's surprising, but it's also I mean, and I'm sure we'll get into this topic, but it's also pretty probably normal for a movie that I consider to be not not only important being in the music industry but it's it's a great film i mean it it makes you feel a lot of different things so i do feel like in the you know entertainment maybe climate that we're in the ones that are a little more poignant and a little more uh pull at your heartstrings a little more aren't going to get as much attention i would think yeah definitely and obviously there was a lot put into this movie like i mentioned with the cast and everything but what i think was cool about this movie is it really felt like an accurate depiction of what the music industry used to be like, at least from what I know of reading about it and hearing people who worked in, you know, the 80s and 90s in the industry, hearing them talk about what it was like. It seemed like it was a very realistic thing. I don't know how realistic it is that this kid would be going out on tour with the band for Rolling (laughs) Stone, but those are things that journalists would do and I know some journalists still do that today you know they'll hit the road maybe not for an entire tour but a week or two stretch cover a band and then get back write their story on it submit it and everything and while we don't have as many print magazines as we did there still are some that have some traction like alternative press I know substream still does print so here we still have a few of those kind of scene publications. And obviously, Rolling Stone is still around because it it would be kind of insane for it not to be because of 
the impact it's had on music and music journalism. So did you also feel that this was sort of a very realistic movie for how the music industry can sort of eat you up and spit you out, but keeping it realistic all at the same time? Oh, man, I've, I have a lot to say on that. And I, I want to <laughs> definitely hear your answer to that question, too. Um, because, I, I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm 31, I can't speak to anything, you know, beyond only working in music the last 10, 10, 12 years. But there, what's so romantic, I think, about that movie is, for one, that, that journalists used to do that. Um, I, every single time I watch Almost Famous, I get so reinvigorated about music journalism and I go update my resume. I go pitch to (laughs) Rolling Stone again to see if I can be a freelancer. Like I get so excited again. And I've, I've pitched that idea to several, several bands of, Hey, can I hop on from Portland to Seattle? Even, um, you know, twin forks was one of them. Uh, Chris Grabo's band, Amberlynn at one point I was trying to get that done. Um, none of it ever, ever happened with those bands, but I've also toured, toured with bands and realize, and not even as a journalist, but realize how much more in depth, of course, you're going to get by being in the van, by uh, doing the grind along with them. I I don't think that it's as brutal. I don't think the industry is as brutal as it's portrayed there. The, the kind of eat you up and spit you out mentality, because I think it's gotten a lot more PC. It's gotten a lot nicer. Right, right. Which is good in some ways, but it's also, I, I watched that movie and I, I do get that romantic feeling of like, like I kind of wish it was that that grind a little more again, and especially with rock music, um, rock music, to, in my opinion, has gotten very very soft. And it's not that it's bad, but you watch a movie like that, and you're like, one of my favorite lines is, um, "Oh man, now I'm, uh, on Russell Hammond saying, didn't we all get into this to avoid responsibility?" Right. You know, they're 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 arguing over a T-shirt design, and and you know, someone says we have responsibility here. Didn't we get in this to avoid responsibility? I, that just sums up s- such a great like, uh, yes, unhealthy, <laughs> but also like a great just like mantra of rock and roll, and I, that I don't think exists exists today. So I have to think that the industry being on the writer side or the industry side of it was night and day. I think probably different from now. What do, what do you think though? Because I've never heard someone. I think, analyze it that way. You know, I think while it's realistic, it still does exaggerate some things and maybe some things don't age quite as well, especially seeing as I just watched the movie much more recently since it originally came out. You know, there aren't too many bands that one even get hotel rooms while they're on tour, but we (laughs) see this band, you know, they have this kind of gutted school bus or gutted bus that they're traveling in and you know they've kind of made it their own thing there but they still get these cushy hotel rooms and you know back then you were aware that a lot of bands would just come in trash hotel rooms and then leave and then if they were charged (laughs) for stuff they didn't care because they were like oh the label will pay for it and all of that but the way it is now a lot more bands are touring without labels Some bands will just go get booking agents and do it that way. They'll do weekenders on the East Coast or West Coast and get attention that way. So we don't even see as many national tours to that extent that we do in this movie anymore. Yes, there are still bands like Green Day and, you know, Fall Out Boy who can go on these big national tours. But for the most part, a lot of the bands, especially the ones that you and I would be writing about they don't have these luxuries they're sort of doing this the hard way in a little van not even a bus and they're sleeping in the van and you know eating in the van and doing everything in the van (laughs) except for you know Mm -hmm. buying food and going to the bathroom essentially right yeah and i think i that's always the thing that i i kind of forget about when i watch that film too is that a big part of that movie is them you know it's this band that's trying to break big and trying to you know they get on the cover of rolling stone and they're on this big tour like you you see a lot of that and you're like this band's big huge they're playing with black sabbath and they're playing with all these big bands and you know they're playing in arenas yeah they're the opening band but they're playing in arenas and they have a bus and then to hear the band members you know kind of talk about like we travel around in a bus and <laughs> and you know we stay in these crappy hotels which they they stay in nice ones too but yeah you would you you do want to be like well if you saw what it was like today um to playing you know some bands playing to 10 people a night um, sleeping at Walmart parking lots, sleeping in a rain-soaked sleeping bag in, a, right. in bark dust in the parking lot, which I've I've done, and it's it's of course it's awful. But to <laughs> to see the difference where they're saying like, no, we're we're staying in hotels, we have a bus, we have hotels every night, and we are struggling. 
Like I, I love that. That's, I mean, I wish that was the case today. If I was touring in my twenties and had hotel rooms every night and a bus, I, I would be like, guys, you've done it. We've, we're, we've all made it. Uh, so it's, it's completely night and day for sure. But, you know, I would love to hear from them today, a band that was around in the seventies or so, uh, that would consider themselves like the size of Stillwater and saying like, oh yeah, we did have a, a, a bus and we did open for these big bands, but man, like we never made it or we, we didn't consider ourselves big whatsoever. We were nothing. Yeah. And you know, when I made that sort of eat you up and spit you out comment, I was more so referring to what it did to William more so than the Mm -hmm. band, because, you know, the band didn't really seem to care too much what was going on outside of them being in their bus, being in their hotels and performing each night. But you have William Miller, who is the high school kid that Rolling Stone sends out on tour with this band. And one, now that seems a lot less reasonable because what parent would let their high school kid (laughs) just go out on tour with some band of older dudes and, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of not have any clue what's going to happen while they're gone. But I feel like, you know, we see William be so excited about this opportunity he has to start and then it's like as the tour goes on and you know some of the band members give them a hard time or they're like no we don't want to do this right now we'll do it later and they keep putting it off to talking to him for his piece that he's supposed to do and you can kind of see it on his face throughout the movie how you know you can go from being really really excited to having a great opportunity in the music industry to it sort of wearing you down very quickly mm-hmm. and I think that his character is sort of the epitome of the music industry. (laughs) You know, it's like as someone who majored in music industry, that's obviously something that's way more new to colleges and everything, because in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even probably the early 2000s, no one had heard of a music industry program at a college. Right. You know, these are still relatively new and you know, I had applied to a school up in Northern California, University of the Pacific. And when I applied, they wanted my major to be something that was like arts management with a focus in the music industry or something crazy like that. And now that I've, you know, I went to Drexel, went to their music industry program, finished up, came back. Now that I did all of that, it's like University of the Pacific has implemented an actual music industry program. So I was like, mm-hmm. all right, so you know, this is something that's still evolving. And even if you go to college for music industry, that's not a guarantee for anything in the music yeah. industry. I mean, I did get a job pretty quickly after I finished school, but it was something that was not hands-on in the music industry. It was doing data entry for a company that basically paid out royalties, which is something that's very important, especially to mm-hmm. all of the artists who, you know, hire this company to do this for them. But for me, you know, like you, I sort of want to focus on the PR and marketing side and writing about it. So, you know, here I am over a year later, and I'm still looking for a job for what mm-hmm. it is exactly that I want to do, because the opportunities are so few and far between. And I think this movie doesn't do the best job of showing that, but I think just how we see William progress as a character kind of shows you how grueling it can be. Oh yeah. And I mean, and that's, it's, I'm glad you brought that up that as I was thinking about this, this conversation today, I thought the biggest or most interesting thing to me is how not only has music journalism changed, but within the film, how, why he is so fascinated with music and with writing about it. And watching this movie when I was younger, before I started doing bigger interviews or, you know, things that were outside of just like my friends or local scene, uh, the inspiration there really came from him, him looking at a band and saying, well, you create this art, you create this music that, that is really touching and really great. And you talk about these things in your songs, how great would it be to sit down and really get into the mind of what, what inspired that and what ushered that song or that album along thinking you're just going to uncover this like treasure chest of epiphanies from this great artist. And the movie does that. I mean, when, you know, a lot of Russell's answers in the movie are just these great poetic things when he finally does get them. But I don't, I I think something that, uh, and, and again, I would love to know your experience with this, but 
I think the more I got excited about that idea when I was younger of like, man, I've been jamming this, you know, let's say Taking Back Sunday album for for two years straight. I right. I would love, you know, I've taken this from this song and now I've applied this to like a girl that I broke up with. Like you, you really attach it to all these things in your life. And then you think, well, what if I could sit down with like the creator of this? And what I still have to realize over and over even today is that if I've already become obsessed with something and I get to sit down with with that creator, I'm probably not going to get the answers that I that I want because I've already I've already made up my mind. And nothing nothing that Adam Lazar could sit down and give me as great as it is, nothing that he can give me is going to be as good as what I've already imagined it to be. That makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think now, too, that we have all of this technology and everything, we don't even necessarily get to sit down with these people and talk to them anymore. Either you are talking to them over the phone or you're sending questions via email and their publicist will give them to the artist and then they'll give them back to the publicist and then they get back to you, which is probably how I do the majority of my interviews, just because if I had to call all of these bands every week and interview them and then spend you know hours transcribing mm -hmm. the interviews, I wouldn't be able to do as right. many interviews as I do. And I don't do that many in general as it is. I feel like I sort of have been wanting to focus more on expanding outside of just music writing. So I've been writing about sports and comics and TV and movies and all that stuff that the last year or so as well. And I think just the fact that we have all of this technology now makes journalism so different. You know, there are companies that will hire you to write for them and you don't even have to go into an office anymore. You know, we see William going into the Rolling Stone office and meeting with people. And what's really great about him as well is the actor who played William Patrick Fugit. It was his first big role, basically. He had been in a couple things here and there on TV, but as far as movies go, it was like this was the first he experienced. And, you know, you get big names in this movie. You you have Jimmy Fallon making an appearance. You have, like mm -hmm. I mentioned, Kate Hudson. You have Zoe Deschanel. And you have Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays Lester Bangs, which that's another thing I want to touch on quickly here. Yes. You know, Lester Bangs is an actual, or I should say was an actual music journalist, and I have a couple of his books on my shelf, mm -hmm, and it's just so interesting how he would approach things, and even though he was in the movie so briefly, because I watched it so much later after I already knew who Lester Bangs was <laughs> and learned about him, I was like, wow, you know, that, that really seems like what he would be like, and then you have... I believe he's in the radio station or something with Polly Perrette, who plays a DJ, and, you know, they're talking. And it was just one of those moments I was like, yeah, this part seems very accurate, you know? Right. I think they got that part down really well. And even though it was such a brief scene, I was like, yes, I love mm -hmm. this part, <laughs> you know? And I think the way journalism today is so different, and I think the way bands approach things would also be so different than it was then because of, like I said, technology, they have social media, they have, you know, they can post on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and all these various social websites. And it's just so crazy how much has changed even since, you know, this movie came out in 2000. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, an easy target too would, would be saying that we've, we've, music is now free. I mean, it's it's a very, very uphill battle. But as soon as that started to come into play and as soon as it was just so accepted to steal music and, and download it for free, I'm not talking about, you know, streaming things. But when when Napster was big and, and all of a sudden it was just like, yeah, of course, why would I why would I pay for this? It's right here. I can get it for free. It, of course, it completely devalued it. I mean, you talk about like the scene with him in the in the radio uh, station, like he is so in love with music. He is so you know, like he's so immersed in it. And when he's, you know, throwing albums off the shelf and saying, oh, I can't believe you have this. And it's, you know, you got to play this. I don't care if it's too early. Like he is so <laughs> he's so immersed in it, like he's so in love with it. And I don't I don't see that as much. And that's I don't know if it's just time. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's because music is so easily accessible now or if we're if we are in like an artistic slump. But uh, I don't know. You see that. And again, I keep I, I keep wanting to go back to the word romantic, like that is what it feels like. It feels just very important 
in that time. And I don't know if it feels like that as much now. Yeah, definitely. And another thing I wanted to sort of touch on was Stillwater as a band. Do you think Mm -hmm. they sort of accurately depicted the attitude that bands had during that time? And with the way they were touring and everything, you know, they Mm -hmm. thought they were so great. And, you know, they didn't necessarily always get the reception they were hoping for at shows. And, you know, they were still going out and having these crazy parties and hotel rooms and everything. So do you think that portion of the movie was accurately depicted for the time it was taking place in? From from what I've read, I mean, it, it certainly seems like it. And I, I would kind of hate to ever find out that that wasn't the case, like as debaucherous and, and terrible and unhealthy as a lot of that stuff was. That is also what cemented like rock and roll. That's what cemented that attitude. And and it's not so much that I enjoy the attitude as much as the, you know, the songs that came from it and the confidence that came from it. Um, I did want to touch w- real quick on one one Lester thing before we move from that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I do you have the book uh, Let It Blurt? Have you read that one? I don't have that one, but I have his main lines, Blood Feasts and Bad Taste, and then the, I believe it's called Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Dung, but I have heard <laughs> of Let It Blurt, and that's just one on my list that I still need to get. Okay, yeah, that's, and that's, uh, I think that's, that's the only one I have, and I still haven't finished it. Um, I started it years ago and kind of come back and forth from it, but the the biggest thing that stood out, and this is probably in some of the other books too, is he... I can't remember. You might remember what band they said it was, but there was a band that invited him on stage to basically write a review of the song while they were playing it. And he, you know, like, of course, they did it up as this big exaggerated thing. Like, I think he came out in like a tux as if he was going to play like a piano, um, a piano piece or something, sat down at a typewriter, you know, and the band played all around him, you know, just like a regular set, just did one song. And he just furiously typed uh, while they played. And then, you know, by the end of the song, he had his review of the performance. And it was this whole, I mean, not only is that just like really cool and fun, but it was, he made it sound like the band wanted, wanted to get across an idea of like, you are just as important. Your role is just as important as our role. And I just thought that was really poignant. I don't, I don't believe that's, that's the case whatsoever anymore, but I wanted, yeah, that that's just my favorite Lester Bangs thing. Yeah, of course. And Another big aspect to this movie, obviously, being a movie about music, is the soundtrack. And on IMDb, at least, they have, I believe, like 52 songs listed. And obviously, when you get songs in movies, you're not necessarily hearing the entire song because, you know, with Stillwater being this fictional band, you know, you have these quote unquote Stillwater songs in the mm-hmm. movie that might not, you know, necessarily be what everyone wants to hear, but you have songs by Led Zeppelin in here, Leonard Skinner, The Who, David Bowie, Black Sabbath, and you know, I think this soundtrack obviously sort of really puts you in that exact time period, you know, they didn't go outside of what they were trying to focus on and the type of music they were trying to focus on, you know, you don't really get any pop songs in Mm -hmm. this movie at all so you know they kept the theme going with this and i think they did an excellent job of picking out the songs for the movie and that's probably also why the budget was quite a bit higher (laughs) than the box office because as you and i both know you know when you have to deal with universal or warner or anything like that it's not easy and i'm sure most of these songs came from universal or warner Yeah, and it wasn't it. Uh, I don't know a ton about the soundtrack other than I do remember that Stillwater songs were written by Cameron Crowe and I believe his wife, who was in Heart. Isn't that right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, do you, it, when, anyone that's watched some of the extras on that that film, I mean, people talk about like, I just wish Stillwater was a real band. Why, why, why can't we just make this a band? I mean, they all the actors, of course, learned everything. That wasn't. That wasn't faked. I'm sure that they're, you know, they're not as great as they, <laughs> great as musicians as they, as they portray. But it's pretty cool to think like these people made up a fictional band, wrote great songs for them. And then by the end, people were like, I wish this was real. I wish I could go see a Stillwater show. <laughs> yeah. And a couple of the songs were also written by the group of Peter Frampton, Wayne Kirkpatrick and Gordon Kennedy. So, you know, some of them are obviously written by 
real songwriters. And I know Cameron Crowe is more of a movie guy, but having Nancy and Ann Wilson from Heart help him out with the writing of the songs, you know, that obviously gives them a more realistic feel. You know, they're not writing these cheesy songs that you can obviously tell weren't written by actual songwriters. So they put a lot of effort into getting everything right for this movie, whether or not it still stands today, obviously, is another story. But I had a conversation similar to this recently because my co-host Megan Moore for Misaligned and I, we did a book club episode on Nothing Feels Good by Andy Greenwald. Mm, And in that book, he talks to Chris Caraba from Dashboard Confessional, which is a band you mentioned earlier. And, you know, it was another one of those things where this book was, you know, earlier in the 2000s when it came out. And he got to go sit on Chris's bus with him and Mm -hmm. talk to him. But then he was talking about live journal, I believe, because that was (laughs) sort of the thing of the time. So that part didn't age as well with the book as some of the other stuff did. So I feel like this movie has, it has a decent balance of stuff that is still accurate. And Mm -hmm. it's just the way technology is, it's changed how we get to the same endpoint, basically. You know, we can chat over Skype like we are right now for this podcast with artists and we can call them and interview them instead of having to sit down in the same room as them. And obviously, you know, you could do that if you were both at a landline back in the 80s. And Mm -hmm. obviously, once people went into the smartphone age and everything and everyone started getting cell phones and smartphones, it made it so much easier to communicate with people whether or not you were in the same state or even the same country. So, you know, you didn't have to worry about long distance fees on phone calls and that sort of stuff anymore. And I think while you don't get necessarily the same outcome from being on the road with a band, you can still get a good feel just talking to an artist over the phone of how they feel about their music, how they feel about the music scene in general and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And I, I was just having this conversation um, with my co-host Ryan the other night because we, we were working on an interview with Kiefer Sutherland, who just put out a country album, which is just really random. But we, you know, like I had big no fan. idea. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not a country fan. And it's it's really good. I mean, it's if I had if I was going to start liking country, it's it's perfect. It's very like whiskey and cigarettes, you know, very country. Okay. Um, so we were talking about that idea and we're like just kind of joking around about, man, I've been fans of this guy like as an actor since we were kids, you know, 24, obviously being this huge show. And he was kind of just saying and Ryan's Ryan's pretty new to, to interviews and stuff. But he was like, man, like even, uh, you know, I'd much rather do it over the phone than in person to be so nerve wracking in person. Right. And I, thought, I thought, well, I, like I get that as somebody that would seemingly be an intimidating person. But I was like, I get way more nervous and fidgety when we do phone interviews and I can't see someone's face because you don't know if they're tracking with you. You don't know if you're way off base as you're explaining something or asking a question. Like I would just, I'd rather, I'd rather cut through the, that tension and be a little bit uncomfortable in person than to wonder like, is, you know, are they just sitting there rolling their eyes? Are they just sitting there? Like, I don't know where you're going with this. Yeah. And I think another thing to add to that is I feel like it's a lot easier to now get along with bands and sort of have a feel for what they're into and what your mutual interests are because you know you have bands that don't just post about their music on social media they're like hey we're watching you know the premiere of this show tonight or this Netflix Mm -hmm. show and you can sort of more easily work those things into a conversation with a band because you're always so connected with them and you know when Almost Famous takes place you, you have this high school kid who probably has never really met too many bands, if he's met any at all. And he's sort of just thrown onto a tour with a band. And, you know, these older guys are probably like, why do we have this high school kid tagging along? What is he doing here? He knows nothing (laughs) about us, nothing about Mm -hmm. anything. And, you know, this movie does a great job of showing that as well, how he is with the band, but he's still sort of on the outside looking in. Yeah, I don't I don't think he ever feels feels a part of it, even even by the time as the viewer, you're thinking, man, like he's just joined this circus now. You know, Penny Penny has really brought him into all of this. I think he's well, he's he's also trying to ride the line between like, don't get too involved, you know, don't become friends with the rock stars. Right. But I I would say maybe even by the end, he still doesn't necessarily feel part of the circus. He he still feels removed. And maybe that's because he's a kid or because he's a writer. But it's uh and, and i don't know 
I almost wonder as a writer though too like do you do you want to feel involved do you want to feel part of the part of the party you know does that does that then take away from what you're I don't know trying to express the message you're trying to put across in your piece yeah it definitely would also sort of make it hard to be unbiased when you're writing about bands (laughs) especially if you're friends with them or know them or anything like that but I think with William and Penny they sort of forge this connection throughout the movie and in a way she is still someone who's sort of untouchable to him because he's still this high school kid and you know she's clearly been doing this knows what she's doing and sort of knows the ins and outs of not getting too attached to bands and I think you know just seeing him go through all of that not only with the band but you know with Penny and her friends and everything it's like you know when he goes back home he's not going to have any of that or any of them there with him it's like you know this is Mm -hmm. an on the road thing Right. And it doesn't stay with him. It's like once he leaves, he's gone and, you know, he has to go back to his normal life of, you know, going to high school and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's certainly like it's like to me, the way that people talk about Warp Tour being, you know, like the punk summer summer camp and stuff. Right. And anyone that's gone to camp for whatever reason, you know, it's always that thing of you're so excited when you get back If or if you go to a conference for something, you're so pumped. And then that eventually just kind of fizzles out. Um, I remember a couple times watching that movie and being like, I don't really want to see him at home anymore. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to come down from, from his high. Like, I just want to hit, I want to know that even this fictional character kept going and that, that he just hopped on a bus again. And that, cause he was by the end, you're like, you're so good at this. Like, you're such a good part of this thing, right. whether or not you think you're a part of it or not, like keep going. And obviously we do see him and Penny again after mm-hmm. the tour has ended and everything, but it's still, you know, pretty brief and. A lot of the big names in the movie that I mentioned earlier aren't even in the major parts of the movie. You know, mm-hmm. Zoe Deschanel's just his sister, I believe, in the movie. And we just kind of see her pop in here and there. And Jimmy Fallon isn't a huge part of the movie, really. It's only Billy Crudup and Kate Hudson who are sort of, you know, the main stars of this movie outside of Patrick Fugit, who no one really knew before this anyway. So it's interesting to see how this cast sort of meshed together. And I think, you know, for those three that I just mentioned, they did a really great job casting those characters. I can't really imagine if it had been anyone else, if it had worked as well. And with William as a character, you know, we really do go on this journey with him. And it's like he's the one we're probably relating to the most and it has nothing to do necessarily with age either it's just like everyone sort of knows what it's like to really love an artist and sort of want to hang out with them and you know know what their life is like outside of being on stage and before you wouldn't necessarily see a lot of bands and what they were doing when they weren't on tour or something like that. But now, like I said, that we're so connected. It's like we always know what bands are up to. You know, if they start recording a new album, we know about it. Or if they post some mysterious picture on Instagram, like a lot of bands do, it's like everyone is talking about, ooh, what could this mean? What are they doing? When's it coming out? And, you know, right. it, there's just so much more content now that I feel like the mystique of bands has sort of gone away. Well, does that... That also makes me think, does that render then what we do? Is that is that what rendered what we do a little more useless? I mean, I, I'm not going to say what we do is useless, but does it make it less special? Because rather than being the the vessel that then gets to say, hey, guys, I had this exclusive access to this band that you all really love. Here's what I got out of it. Here's this content. Here's this information. And I'm you know, I was privileged enough to get this. Here you go. I'll give it to everyone else. Now it's a little bit more like everyone has access to a lot of this stuff. And I also think it maybe makes our job just more challenging in a, in a great way because I could sit down with uh, Chris from Dashboard and, and sit there and be like, I know everything you've done for the last month but by looking at your Twitter. Um, so I really had to go deep with, I really had to work that much harder to come up with things that uh, people don't know and ask you about things that aren't aren't out there for everyone to see. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it makes our jobs as either publicists or writers more useless. I think it just makes them a little harder because, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to hit on these points that 
other people haven't hit on yet. And, you know, I really sort of took a step back last year and decided that this year I wasn't going to do nearly as many album reviews because I felt like I was just burning myself out on them, trying to Mm -hmm. do them because for Hi-Fi Noise, my website, I'm really the only consistent writer. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of publicists will be like, hey, does anyone on your staff want to cover this? If you can't (laughs) cover it, I'm like, I don't have a staff. So, (laughs) you know, it's like I always have to sort of decline doing album reviews because otherwise I would literally just spend all day every day doing album reviews if I reviewed Mm -hmm. everything someone sent to me. And it's sort of hard to then pick and choose which albums I really want to talk about. Because if you have these bigger releases, like, let's say the Ed Sheeran release that just came out Mm -hmm. this past Friday on March 3rd, I'm not going to review that. There is no (laughs) point in me reviewing that because you're going to have, you know, the New York Times talking about it, Rolling Stone talking about it, all these huge publications talking about this release. And it's like, no one's going to care what I think about it, even if I really, really love it or if I really, really hate it, which I haven't listened to it, but I highly doubt I would hate an Ed Sheeran release if I tried. And, you know, I sort of want to talk about some of the smaller bands that I really enjoy. You know, I reviewed the new release from Culprit and their local band to Los Angeles. And I feel like a lot of people outside of Southern California might not know too much about that band. So, you know, if I can get a review up and get other people from, you know, other states looking at that, I feel like that's something that not only I enjoy, but I think that could potentially help a band. And that's sort of what I want to do. I want to, you know, help bands more than I want to just know everything about them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that comes, uh, I had the exact same curve, I think eventually where I wanted to write about bands. I also wanted to know the bands I did. I did want to be, there was part of me that wanted to be, um, friends or, or closer with, with people that I, I admired and that had been influential to the way that I write or the way that I take in art. Um, but I think there was, yeah, a curve also of, yeah, these, these big bands are always going to be here. They are just fine. They, Ed Sheeran does not need me. Right. Um, <laughs> I was just reviewing, uh, there's this band on pure noise called can't swim. Do you know okay, about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I had no, I didn't know anything about them just showed up in my inbox and I thought, Oh, pure noise. Like they've had some cool stuff and I'll try to listen to everything of course. Um, but I've had that record in a, in a two or three songs in particular on repeat for the last week. And, and I'm sure you get this way too. I mean, it's so easy to get burned out. It's so easy to get like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to stick to everything I listened to in high school and college. That's the stuff that makes me feel the best. Everything else beyond that is kind of just like entertainment or fun to listen to, but nothing is really going to like grab a hold of me again, like it did when you were 16. Right. And every once in a while, of course it looks different. I'm 31. I'm not, I'm not 16 and going through my first breakup, but there's still stuff that can really, I think, get a hold of you in a different way. And that's, that's been for me to like, like I said, just the last week or so with Can't Swim. And it's just, it blew my mind the other night to just think about, I went, you know, I've, then I start researching them. I'm like, oh, where are they from? And I'm going to go add them on social media. And I, I tweet something about it. And, you know, within minutes, it's liked and retweeted by, you know, someone in the band. And you just think, like, yeah, these are the bands that I want to talk about. The, like the people that are instantly, you know, retweeting that and instantly seeing like, oh, like we are on the right track. Somebody is feeling something from this. Okay, great. Like I could, I could go tweet at Ed Sheeran all day, but like, that's just not, uh, it's not beneficial to either one of us. So I get, I, I like that you said that I, I would rather be on the side of the smaller bands and if they go somewhere great and you can have that little, that fun little tidbit of saying like, well, I listened to them first. Um, but, but, and if they don't like, it's still special to you. It still holds a time and a place and a memory and that's great. What else can you ask for? Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of the mentality that you can grow with the local scene and grow with these bands and sort of not necessarily launch your career off of theirs, but, you know, it's like building up this community. And I saw this a lot in Drexel, which is in Philadelphia for anyone who doesn't know. And that's also where modern baseball came from. You know, three of the guys went to Drexel with me. Two of them specifically were in my grade. So, you know, we saw them playing basements in people's houses and you know they played the campus venue and from there it just sort of snowballed and they got so big that I went to see them down here at the observatory in Santa Ana and it was sold out Mm. and you know 
that room was completely packed and it was so crazy for me as a friend of theirs to see that Mm -hmm. because I was like, this is literally insane to me. I was like, these dudes I went to college with are doing this thing and doing it on a bigger scale than I think even they had thought they would do. And I know right now the guys are taking a break just for the sake of their sanity, probably. And, you know, they need to take some time to themselves because they've just been working nonstop since this thing got going with their first release. Mm -hmm. And I think when you put a lot of your time and effort into these smaller local bands, it really pays off in the end, whether or not it pays literally with money is another story. (laughs) But, you know, it's sort of a rewarding experience to grow with these bands and see just how far they can go. Yeah, I, being a part of any any small slice of that process to me is I think is just and and that's why I, I switched into even doing PR too was just I wanted to be even a small part of growth for a band. And especially when you just like you said you find a local band and you're like why isn't everybody paying attention to this? Right, yeah. And and you're like, wait, can I, is there anything I can do? <laughs> I mean, I feel like that that was the easiest um transition of just like if there's anything I can do to make other people see what I'm feeling when I watch you guys play, um, it's a noble pursuit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, why don't we bring it back to the movie a bit here and sort of wrap this up? Do you have a specific moment that was sort of your favorite of the movie? Um, yeah, I was trying to think of that, actually. There's, I, was, I'm try, I was trying to narrow it down. Um, there definitely is, and not just, I guess not just because it's, it's the end and he finally gets his sit down with Russell, but something I come back to a lot is he keeps kind of William keeps trying to ask the question, like, what do you love about music? Right. And to me, that's like the biggest part that almost, that almost dates it backwards or dates it. I mean, I can't say for sure that's seventies thing, but that dates it not today right. where I started to think, man, I would love to just start my interviews with that question because it would catch people really off guard. And I think it just, I would, I would love to, some of the people that I, that have been the most influential to me, and I, maybe we can get into that before we wrap up on both mm-hmm. ends, both sides of us here. But um, I would love to know just like that simple answer rather than being like, OK, so like the the newest thing, you know, you just put out this record, you work with this producer. What did you know? What was that like to just like kind of bring it back to like a more human level of like the average person thinks that what you do traveling in a bus or a van uh, being, you know, like creating something out of nothing is so risky. It's so unstable. You've heard your whole life. Why don't you go get a real job? Uh, so why, why, like, why are you, what keeps you going on something that is completely unstable and to most people, very silly and unrealistic. So that moment of him finally, you know, saying that to Russell and and Russell starting off with saying like, well, in a word, everything, um, I don't know, like even just talking about that now gave me goosebumps of, (laughs) Yeah, like, I don't know, that's such an important thing. And so I think anything that brings it back to that human level um, of that question, that's just a perfect way to, to end the film, I think. What's yours? I'd love to know what yours is. I think my favorite moment specifically in the movie is when William is not allowed into the venue by security and then Penny Lane <laughs> shows up and it's like, you know, she can see sort of the motivation in this kid and, you know, that mm-hmm. this is really something he wants to do. So she finds a way to get him in and sort of guide him through, you know, being backstage at a show of this caliber. And Mm -hmm. I think that is, you know, the moment when they have that connection. And it's not even like some sort of romantic connection. It's like, clearly, they're just going to be friends, you know, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) I love that they keep it that way throughout the whole movie. You know, they never sort of be like, oh, they're going to end up together in the end because, Mm -hmm. you know, he's in high school. (laughs) Let's be honest, that's never going to happen. And I love how they keep that relationship that way throughout the movie. And I think that's sort of really what helps William get through this whole tour. Yeah, I think they did a good job of keeping like that purity part intact. Like you didn't want to wonder if they're going to sleep together by the end of the movie or something. That would have taken a lot of the the heart out of it, I think. That moment yeah. of her, you know, like they're watching the first Stillwater show of the movie and he starts to take notes and she I think she takes his pencil and throws it behind her, you know, just kind of shakes her head and laughs. Like that that moment of like just be here, right? Like yeah, that's that to me always just solidified like they're they're friends and she's gonna guide him and teach him and stuff. Um, and there's so much 
he's already in this great place in his mind. He got he got into the show. He's writing about music. He's writing for Rolling Stone. Um, and for her to be like, yeah, that's all great. But like to really make the, to really make your dream work, you're going to have to go outside of the box a little bit and you're going to have to just be here in the moment. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned wanting to talk about influence here before we wrap this up. I feel like this is something that I've always really struggled with simply because I mm-hmm. am a person who likes so many different things. You know, I read a ton of books. I read comic books a lot now and <laughs> I listen to music. I listen to podcasts and it's just like there's mm-hmm. all of these new things that I didn't necessarily have or do when I was in high school or something, but they still influence me in some sort of way now. Yeah. So, you know. Well, maybe I can narrow it a little bit, too. I guess in, in terms of what we've talked about with the movie and then saying, you know, these people that you want to sit down and have a conversation with. Because um, I feel like I've I've had those where I was very excited. I thought this this guy was this person, this writer was so influential to me. I can't wait to ask about this certain song or this certain album. And the answer was was disappointing, um, not only because not only like I explained before about what I already thought, but because it wasn't like a personal story from him. It was like, oh, I had this idea about this. This thing kind of happened to our drummer, but then I tweaked it to be this. And I just thought it lost like its heftiness. Right. Versus the people where I did sit down and I had that, ex- that h- a high expectation and they exceeded it and kind of blew me away with their answers, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I haven't really sat down and talked to big artists by any means at all. But I think for me, you know, the artists that I've sort of always wanted to know the most about and I've read a lot about would be Green Day and The Clash. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I was not alive when The Clash was banned. (laughs) I mean, you know, I maybe hit the tail end, but with Joe Strummer being gone now, that's sort of something that bums me out so much because I'm like, I will never get the chance to talk to him and sort of pick his brain about things because I feel like you know when people think about punk bands they probably just think it's like a group of bumbling idiots making music that a lot of people don't like but Mm -hmm. for me I think you know Joe Strummer just had something about him that allowed the clash to be what the clash was and obviously the other members contributed to that but with Joe Strummer being the singer and everything it's like all right he sort of was the go-to guy and I feel like the same can be said of Billy Joe Armstrong I feel like he's actually a really smart dude and you know he has shown this you know they took American Idiot to Broadway what (laughs) punk band could have ever pulled that off you know and while they might be a lot more mainstream than the clash ever were it's like I feel like there are a lot of similarities there that had they both arrived at the same time period you know people would have been torn between which bands to go, which of the bands to go see and everything like that. And I think, you know, they're definitely huge influences, not because of the music necessarily, but just because of the kind of people they were as well. Yeah. Or are in Billy Joe's case, he's still around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I, I To see it taken to these levels, something like Broadway, where you're like, wait, these, these two things do not go together. Um, that's amazing. That's who's who else is going to do that? What other punk band? What other band could do that? <laughs> yeah, and they just both seem like such real down-to-earth people and I mean Billy Joe has had his problems, you know, he's gone to rehab and you know, I know a lot of celebrities have done that, but he seems like way more open about it than most would be and you know, he just has this presence about him that it's like I feel like if I met him today, I would still be able to hold a conversation with him. I don't think he would just be like, oh, you, I don't want to talk to you sort of thing (laughs) like that. And I feel like some artists get so big and obviously a lot of them, it'll go to their head and they're just like, I don't want anything to do with anyone I don't know sort of thing. Yeah, I have my circle and and everyone else is potentially a threat maybe or just potentially. Yeah, no one else is getting in, I think. Yeah. So who would you cite as some of your influences? Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I could name so many for influence, but as, as far as kind of the expectation factor, um, and we've talked about Chris Caraba a lot on this one. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. he's just so up there for me. Um, not, I think even if I hadn't have, have sat down with him, if I would have never had an interview, um, whether it was over the phone or now the several, several, thankfully, uh, in-person ones I've had with him, I still, I, I think I would have kept this really high opinion and then when we did get to finally sit down or even just have phone conversations, um, that's a guy that, and I'll name a few others, but like, that's a guy that would be playing on a street corner if he wasn't big. Like he would yeah. st- like, it's, I mean, music is, 
to me, it's like just the true artistry. It's the true like beatnik. Um, like music is like breathing. If you can pay attention, if you want, it's great that I have thousands and thousands of fans. Uh, like that's all a bonus. But like if you guys weren't here, I would still be playing my guitar. I would still be writing these songs. Like it's a bonus that you're here and I'm thankful, but I would still be doing it without you. Um, I think Anthony Green from Circus Survive, weirdest guy ever, but the most like true sense yeah, of an artist. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I would say Jason Butler from Let Live, like these guys that just just really I mean, this sounds weird to say, but I mean, just really, really care, like care about the music, care about all aspects of it. Um, Of course, care about their fans, but that really do have a wealth of knowledge and wisdom and artistry that when you do get to sit down and ask them those questions, they will kind of blow you away a little bit versus being like, you know, the song's kind of about this and that. And I like this idea of like, I don't know. That's that's fine because it's still it's still from you. But when you, you know, dashboard like every other anyone around our age, like, you know, those were the breakup songs. Those were the high school soundtrack. So you have very intense memories tied to a guy like Chris. And then to find out that he cares about that is is just it's so nice. It's so refreshing, I think. Yeah. And like you said, there are obviously so many influences we could cite it because, you know, <laughs> there are those people you're just like, can I please just do what you do and be you essentially, <laughs> you know, right. like for me, if I could do what Bill Simmons does and just write and podcast and be paid lots of money to do that, yep. that would be, you know, the <laughs> top goal in life <laughs> and everything like that. But at the same time, it's like, you still have to take these baby steps. And, you know, if you get to have these conversations with these people, that's great. And that's something that can really help you. But you also don't necessarily need those conversations at the same time. Because like I said, we're so connected now. It's like you always know Mm -hmm. what these people are up to. But I think that wraps up everything we have today. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jameson, for coming on. This was a great discussion. And I will definitely have to have you back on for other topics in the future. Maybe we'll even get you on Misaligned to talk about a lot more music and stuff. Yes, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. No problem. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.